Welcome to the Hospitality Maverick podcast with me, Michael Tinkther. We at Hospitality Mavericks are here to inspire leaders to create heart-centered and profitable businesses from the inside out, the kind that both employees and customers love and support. In this episode, we're talking to Alien Aisy, the founder of Tamwell Capital, an advisory business with one foot rooted in the institutional world and the other firmly planted in the camp of the consumer-facing brand-led entrepreneur. They have, over the last three and a half years, helped challenges brands such as Swingers, Gymbox, Inception Group, and many others with fundraising deals. Ali has more than 20 years of experience in private equity and M&A, working with founders in hospitality and leisure. Ali talks about how his entrepreneurial journey originally started with hunting opportunities in Libya and at the same time overcoming personal health crisis back in 2013 and that in the end took him back to hospitality and leisure. He gives an ultra clear overview on how the investment landscape looks in the moment, the type of investors that are out there and reveals he thought about how landlords could pivot into becoming investors in progressive brands in the near future. We also talk about what the most progressive brands and operators are doing to survive and thrive by either building formats that experience-led or have focus on multi-channel revenue streams. There's some great out-of-the-box thinking in this episode, so make sure you're fully tuned in and have your notebook and pen ready and enjoy. Welcome to the Hospitality Maverick podcast. We are in early August. We are in this funny space of the pandemic where I just said before to the guest we are going to present in a moment that we are in this wilderness of uh, really walking slowly slowly forward and uh, and hospitality is open. We have uh, a lot of things going on and, and, and sales is going up every week, uh, but not many people are actually thinking about further than maybe a month or a couple of weeks ahead. And today's guest is a bit different guest than we have had uh, in the recent times. We've had a lot of operators and consultants and experts. Today, we're going to talk with uh, Alien AC from Tamwell Capital, which actually, you know, sees a lot of businesses and help them raise money and advise them in that. Ali, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for uh, inviting me. I'm really been looking forward today because uh, it's probably not something I haven't definitely not noticed it, but a lot of people is probably not in the moment talking about raising money. How do we scale the business? It's it's all about survival, as we mentioned before we went on the air. But it could be interesting just for, for people that doesn't know who you are and uh, what your teams are doing, because you're doing some quite interesting and incredible things you're definitely working with as you say yourself with the the challenges of uh, our beloved retail and leisure and hospitality industry yeah okay well um let me give you a sort of a potted history of my my journey for, for many years i had a very vanilla very corporate uh, and some would say quite a predictable uh, journey quite a predictable career which you know looked no different to many others across across the city. Um, I trained and qualified as a chartered accountant uh, with a firm called Baker Tilly, uh, who are now RSM. Um, I qualified with them in the late 90s, and then I spent the next 15 years working in their mergers, acquisitions, and private equity team. 
uh, mainly advising founders and owner managers on small cap, uh, mid cap deals, uh, largely sell side and, and fundraising roles for growth businesses. And like many professionals in my position, you know, I climbed the corporate ladder. Um, I became a partner in 2008, um, and I was re- responsible for the firm's uh, leisure, hospitality, and and private equity efforts in in the UK. And it was all good. Um, I learned a lot. Uh, I, uh, in particular, learned the the craft of uh, deal doing. Um, built up a uh, uh, a solid network within those sectors. Things were going well, but it was all a bit vanilla. And after 18 years of sort of being immersed in, in the corporate world, I started to fall out of love with it a little bit. And given I'd spent my time advising entrepreneurs how to mitigate and manage risk in their deals, it didn't feel right that I had never taken any risk myself. So I started to wonder what life might look like as an entrepreneur. And strangely, this this thinking coincided with the uh, Arab Spring kicking off and the the revolution in in Libya. I'm Libyan by background, and when when all of that was happening, I got very excited about the prospect of a uh, Gaddafi-free Libya. When that revolution was successful and Gaddafi was toppled in middle of 2011, all sorts of opportunities started to emerge and and come my way. Uh, and the topic of state building became, became something of interest. And so I convinced myself that the opportunities in Libya were many, that this was my calling to have a, a front row seat and play a role in the rebuilding of Libya and to, to, to take some risk, you know, go on a proper adventure, help bring democracy and corporate best practice and prosperity to to the Middle East, he says naively. Um, So, yeah, so I resigned from RSM in in, uh, early uh, 2013, who, by the way, they thought I was nuts and was having some sort of midlife crisis. But they were very good, very understanding, really supportive, kept the door open for me to return if, if things didn't work out. And that for me was the sort of the the comfort blanket and the safety net that I needed to take the risk. And so I formally formally left the partnership in uh, in the middle of 2013 to start this entrepreneurial journey, to start this Libya adventure. And I immediately had my first setback. One month into this journey, I was thrown a proper curveball and was diagnosed with stage two blood cancer. So not the best way to to kick things off. Well, just imagine, you know, we're talking about how tough it is right now. That must have been like, you know, uh, looking a lot of things at yourself and in the mirror and trying to, not only from a health point of view, but also picking yourself up mentally and and go and do do the thing in, uh, in far away from London. Even uh, what happened then, and then how how did you actually cope in the, with all that? Well, it's it's uh, it's a long story, um, but touching on it briefly, you know, it, it wasn't fun. I ended up spending the best part of nine months in and out of hospital, going through chemo, whilst at the same time working on getting this Libya business off the ground. 
look, I, I tell many people that it was definitely, you know, one of the most challenging periods in my life. And, but it was also the, the best thing to have, to have ever happened to me. You know, it put thing, many things into, uh, into perspective and it reminds, it reminds you, I mean, it certainly reminded me of, you know, the finite time we have on this world, uh, and you know of our of our mortality. So, you know, it was a uh, it was a real sort of eye opener. I'm one of the lucky ones. I was able to to beat the disease. Um, you know, in my sixth year of, of remission, you know, I've never felt I've never felt better. I was very fortunate, uh, and that's the good news. The bad news is that the uh, the Libya journey, despite despite my best efforts, the the Libya project was proving incredibly challenging. Um, and yeah, I in many ways I struggled more with getting the Libya business off the ground than I did fighting the cancer. Wow. Okay. But again, like it's amazing that you know six years now uh, out on the other side. So congratulations on on that. While I remember saying that, yeah. But then, but then, what what happens after Libya then? Because then that then you 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 put that to the side and said, uh, okay, I'll need to I need to find you. you guess like anyone else, you needed to have a roof over the head. <laughs> I mean, the, the Libya the Libya sort of adventure was was tough largely because. There were just too many bad guys and, and not enough good guys on, on the Libya scene, uh, with more people interested in, in draining the state of its resources than, than building it. And so, you know, the dream that I had, that many of us had of a sort of a free and prosperous Libya was looking increasingly unlikely. And, and I always knew that there was risk of this. And so when I set out on this journey, uh, one of the things that I was very keen to do was to make sure that my network of relationships in the UK didn't decay uh, and that I made an effort to, to stay in touch with that network and keep that network warm, whether it was on in the leisure and hospitality scene or in, or in the private equity community. And so I was three years into the, 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 the Libya journey. Uh, it was early 2016. Uh, and a former client of mine, Richard Hilton, founder of Gymbox, a London-based gym chain, who I had advised for many years whilst I was at RSM, reached out and wanted help with his his next transaction. So, you know, Richard and I had been talking on and off for, for many years. He knew I was off doing strange things in Libya, but he, he wanted to know if I could advise him on his next deal. So that actually was the the start of the pivot from focusing efforts on Libya and getting back to the world of M&A and, you know, the vanilla world of M&A and private equity. So uh, I took on that gym box mandate and Richard and I, the rest of the team, we spent a big chunk of 2016 working on that deal. And pleased to say we, we closed that deal in, in October of that year. Got a great result despite a wobble with the Brexit referendum. Uh, we were able to to get it over the line. Uh, got a good set of terms for all those that were involved, and and it was that deal that reminded me how much I enjoyed transacting, uh, how much I enjoyed working with challenger brands, with founders, and and with private equity. And so, 
it was around this point that I decided to to wind down my Libya business and yeah, and sort of get back into the world of uh, M&A and private equity deal doing. But I wanted to do it differently. I felt there was a gap in the market for an M&A and private equity boutique uh, focused exclusively on advising challenger brands. Uh, so, you know, these are the brands that are shaking it up, doing things differently in their respective categories. And I wanted to provide an M&A service that delivered the best possible results for its clients um, without the baggage that comes with dealing with a, uh, a stuffy institution. So, you know, we wanted to be like a, a smaller, more agile version of a Rothschilds, but without the sort of the corporate label. And so we, we ditched the suits, we put on the sneakers, we, we parked up in fun offices in Portobello and, and hired talented people that had a, a similar attitude and a similar outlook. And, and here we are, it's, you know, three and a half years later. We've you know, advised and completed some, some of the sectors, my, my standout transactions, some of the, the best challenger brands in, uh, in the world of leisure. And uh, we've established a name for ourselves as being, as a, being a destination and a, and a go-to advisor for the best and the brightest challenger brands in, in leisure, hospitality and, and wellness. And for people out there, can you, can you mention some of those uh, brands? Because they are quite well known, some of them. So the journey kicked off with the uh, gym box. That was a deal that we closed, like I said, back in 2016. It was backed by BGF. That was a 50-something million pound EV deal. Shortly after that, we closed the deal with Frame. So also in the, in the health and fitness category, but this was a business that provided pay-as-you-go uh, classes. That was a deal backed by Piper. Um, and then the next deal is a deal that really sort of sort of got us on the map and got us noticed was with a business called uh, Swingers. Uh, you know, these are the mini golf, crazy golf, food court, beverage brand that are doing great things in the world of competitive socializing. The, those deals, I mean, like you couldn't pick a better set of brands and a better set of businesses to start your journey with. Yeah, and I think it's swingers is you know they 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 are particularly interesting because they actually designed a new way of delivering hospitality, leisure, going out of have fun in a different way. And we had Math on the the podcast, uh, one of the co-founders. Um, I think it was back in January, uh, talking about that journey in a way. And I, I guess I could imagine that journey has been very different now when they haven't had been able to to have guests in their venues for for some time now. Um, but can you tell me a bit about, you know, what, what happened then? Like, you know, everybody thinks what happens then when you have the pandemic, you're helping people raising money, what happened for you? What happened for the clients in this uh, period of time? Uh, and we don't know how long we're in it yet. If it's 12 months, 18 months or two years, nobody knows, but what, what's happening at your, your side of the defense? I mean, it's been, uh, a real a real kick in the nuts for, for the sector, hasn't it? Uh, yeah, that's, been, a, that's a very nice way of saying it. Right? It's been quite a sobering time, actually, uh, for, uh, for us, for our, for our clients, you know, and, and the sector more, more widely. On a personal level, it's been incredibly frustrating. You know, we were 
we were looking forward to having a bumper 2020. Uh, we had three deals on the go before COVID struck, uh, one of which was a week from completing, which we'd been working on for nine months. And we had a pipeline of some amazing formats, amazing businesses, uh, many of which you know we were the, the favored advisory solution for. Uh, so things were looking promising for us as a business. And then the sector, the sector had had a good Christmas uh, and the like for likes in January and February were, were looking encouraging. And some of the businesses now pipe, pipeline were absolutely smashing it. And so the backdrop for 2020 for us and for the sector you know, was looking really promising. Uh, and we were gearing up for a busy year of, of deal doing. And then there was this chatter about a bug going round and, you know, some sort of a virus. And, you know, before you knew it, overnight, every single client we had and every single business in our pipeline shut down and went from being highly profitable, throwing off cash to being highly loss-making and, and burning cash. I mean, it was nuts. Um, and in a very short period of time, the 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 record 2020 that we were looking forward to i mean it just went up in flames and the the, rever the reversal of fortunes was was quite something to, to both witness it with our clients uh, and and feel it firsthand in our in our business where have it left you have, have anyone come back and say that well we still want to pursue this we will just need to find uh, you know ourselves in all this and find a way out of the you know Probably most of them are still in survival mode, I guess. I guess there's no one that has come out yet and said they are ready to go and make deals right now. But I guess there's a reality of a future where you will come back, uh, where people will need that kind of financing actually to move on and actually you know, recoup the business as well. And I guess there is investors interested in investing into the sector in general as well. Yeah, I mean, look, the... Um... It was a strange time. <laughs> um, I spent almost the entire six, eight weeks of, of lockdown on the phone with with clients and, and operators, no, not deal doing, more more providing therapy and counseling to, to founders who were who were shell-shocked by what was going on. And you know, these are people that had shed blood, sweat and tears building their businesses, often over many years, um, often on the back of, you know, significant financial sacrifice. And suddenly their their lively, livelihoods were, were on the line. And so, you know, I spent that time, well, trying as best as possible to keep a cool head. Uh, but occasionally I felt like curling up into a little ball, rocking back and forth in the corner of the room. Our transactions went, the three deals that we were working on, basically went on ice. Uh, well, two of them went on ice. One morphed into a, an accelerated fundraising. And our clients and, and the, the sector more widely turned their attention to, you know, like you say, survival. So there was brutal cost-cutting, flurry of furloughing, intense discussions with banks, landlords, suppliers. It really was adrenaline-fueled and, and a wacky time and i suspect business schools the world over are going to be lecturing about this period for decades to come so i think people have acclimatized 
we've been through the shock of it all. The lockdown is loosening. People have opened up. People are trading. And I think week on week, people are getting a bit more visibility on what that trade looks like. And week on week, that trade is improving. And I suspect that, you know, it's going to take a while before regular deal doing, the sort of investment activity that we saw pre-COVID returns. Uh, It's going to take a while for uh, us to get back to sort of pre-crisis levels. But that's not to say that there isn't activity taking place as we speak. It's just a different type of activity. With the... All this carnage that's gone on and still going on, when you talk investment, you could imagine that, uh, you know, activities has, uh, you know, um, stopped and uh, how would it look for the future? And uh, when would it actually go back to anything looking, I wouldn't call it normal, but the new normal for investment? How will, when will that kick in again? Because I guess there is still activity going on, but uh, I guess it's not the, the kind of in normal investment is picking up deals that can be turned into something the turnaround kind of stuff but what what is your view on the whole investment landscape and and the coming time for it there are three buckets of investors out there but only two of them are currently looking to do deals so you've got the the turnaround guys you know so these are investors that are set up to buy businesses in difficulty and out of administration uh the current crisis is a perfect backdrop for them uh they're busy and then there are the the sector specialists that have real conviction in the industry conviction in its uh medium to longer term future they're much better placed to form a view uh, of risk and they see the current climate as a good buying opportunity uh, and a great time to deploy capital so they're also busy then the third bucket of investors the generalists i think they're they're sitting on the sidelines adopting more of a wait and see approach and i suspect it will be a while before they have the appetite to get to get back into the uh, get back into the industry. So, so in short, the universe of investors has certainly shrunk. But you know, we expect that in, investor appetite will rise once once things start to normalise, and 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 in particular, once operators can point to a, a PL and an earning stream that they can forecast with some confidence. Uh, the amount of money out there remains at a an all time high, and and the pressure to deploy it. Uh, is significant, albeit institu- institutions, you know, need to remain uh, disciplined. The the other interesting thing that I think we may see over the course of the next chapter is is the commercial real estate landlords potentially building out their own in-house leisure and hospitality investment teams. So if if you think about it, the real estate asset class is no. It's not very different to, to private equity. They are both long-term investors. They are both illiquid asset classes. They both seek to generate uh, above-average returns. Uh, and these in, in both, you know, both these investor pools have access to capital. 
the only thing that's stopping commercial landlords from getting in on the investment game is is talent and lack of familiarity with uh, with private equity uh, investing. And and let's face it, they have had it so good in, in uh, over the last few decades they haven't needed to be innovative but i think we may well see landlords bringing private equity investment skills in-house and and this is not a new trend you know it was underway pre pre-crisis and and i think it will accelerate and and we've seen it in deals that we've worked on ourselves so swingers for example that was backed by kane international Kane or a real estate investor who happened to have or happened to have developed uh, an in-house leisure investment arm. The owner of Equinox, the the premium gym chain, is owned by Related Properties, massive real estate owner out in the States. Soho House recently received or late late last year received $100 million of investment from a consortium that included Simon Properties, the biggest mall owner in the state. So I think there, there, is, there may well be an increasing trend over the course of the next chapter uh, of us seeing uh, the commercial real estate guys getting more involved in, in the ownership of leisure, hospitality and, and retail assets. Super interesting thought because actually you think about it, um, you go back in history and thinking about you know how McDonald's built their empire, how hotels, Hilton, and so on have built their empires. They they're property owners. They invest in operation that brings the value up of their properties. Super interesting, Ali uh, view, and I I have never thought about that in the, all this, but yeah, I can see that need something like innovation from the landlords has to happen as they have these assets anyway standing there. I think it will be triggered and driven by needs to begin with. So landlords need tenants and tenants obviously need cooperative landlords to make it through this difficult period. In the absence of this sort of innovation, you know, landlords are going to be left with a whole bunch of empty units. Um, and I think that this crisis may well trigger a different approach and a different way of doing things. And, you know, if it's successful and they generate good results and good returns out of it, then who knows, it may become increasingly mainstream for landlords to offer up uh, funding solutions, equity-driven funding solutions in the sector. You also mentioned the operators before. They are, you know, right now trying to find their way forward, looking at their P&Ls, their weekly sales, and they're trying to forecast themselves into a way. And it's going to take some time before they, with confidence, you say, really can show some projection that will, you know, keep or make confidence within, within some investors. But what are they doing? These operators are doing the right thing. There is some operators doing, you know, incredible things. You know, they're innovating on a level. They're building new revenue streams, reinventing business models and so on. What are you seeing within the industry and the clients you're working with? Because I guess that's in a way where investors get confidence as well that the, the organization can turn it around and find new ways. Look, I think there are, there are two ways for hospitality operators to go. Either you go big on experience or you go big on multi-channel. And if you're 
fortunate enough to be able to do both, you know, that's the holy grail. I think businesses that are experience light or are dining only are going to be exposed. And the buzzword at the moment is is resilience. Uh, and operators, that the good operators out there are spending time thinking about how to build resilience into their formats. And one of the things that the pandemic has has shown us in a very visible way for some is, you know, the, the, the fragile nature of the sector and in particular how dependency on dining only formats comes with, uh, with risk and how, how easy it is for guests to consume product from home. So, so either you have a format that cannot be replicated from home, which takes you down the experience route, or you embrace the consuming from home trend and, and build out your, your multi-channel offering. Multi-channel is a topic that is being looked at very hard by operators. Uh, formats with eat-in, delivery, takeaway, cooking at home, retail. These sort of multi-channel formats are able to spread their revenue generation across several verticals, clearly giving them more flexibility they don't have all that all of their eggs in one basket albeit it's going to add a a layer of complexity to their ops and i guess that's that's the big you know question as as we come back in can can the operation model and the team lift the the task of all the things they're inventing is there any particular things you've seen within all this where you think this is this is really good this is really clever if we say an example of the experience route and then an example of the multi-channel route. So I, th- I think on, on the multi-channel side, operators that are doing that well include the likes of JKS, Patty and Bun, Pizza Pilgrims. I mean, th- those those last two in particular, I think have been very clever with the the recipe kits that they've launched. Uh, because they've been able to combine product with experience at home, believe it or not. So, you know, the pizza in the pie by the guys at Pilgrims and, you know, the, the recipe kit burgers from the guys at Patty and Bun, that allowed the consumer, yes, to consume great product at home, but it, it added with the theater and the fun and the experience of making it yourself. So uh, I think I think those guys are doing doing a good job and you know and there are others tortilla rosas you know many of these businesses are actually not doing too bad uh, given given the backdrop and, and and given the climate but it's clearly driven by delivery and and takeout and then on the experience side you either need to supplement that offering with an activity which the competitive socializing formats do do so well like guys at flight club swingers bounce SEV, or your format is such that it transports guests to another world, you know, delivering a sense of escapism, getting away from it all, uh, you know, providing an experience that can't be had at home sitting on the sofa. And the guys that do that well are, I think, Inception. Inception do this incredibly well with their themed formats, the, the Mr. Fogs and, and the Cahoots. And, and they've gone one step further by leaning into the crisis. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the use of mannequins and you know the beekeeper. So they've used mannequins to help with distancing. 
in one of their fog sites, the staff are dressed in beekeeper outfits as a, as a form of PPE. It's, you know, it's, it's clever. It's illustrative of some of the innovation that is taking place in, in the sector. I guess the other challenge is for operators to be seen to conform to COVID requirements whilst not creating a sterile clinical environment. So no, no one wants to be reminded of COVID when they walk into a bar or walk into a restaurant. They want to escape. They want an experience. That's why they are there. They don't want to feel like they're walking into a hospital or they're uh, giving their order to somebody that resembles Hannibal Lecter. You know, it's, it's, it's a fine, but it's a fine balance because there's still some nervousness out there. And we've done a few recce's in in recent weeks post the the loosening of lockdown, and and it's amazing that there are a number of formats out there that have got this balance right, in my opinion. So guys at Hawksmoor, guys at Corbin and King, they've been able to deliver a COVID secure experience, but it feels incredibly normal. And I think, you know, other than the temperature checks, as you walk in and the staff maintaining distance you would struggle to tell the difference i guess that's also as you said i think it's very interesting like people they are the people that venture out they're looking for a bit of fun and escape about all this covid talk and yeah i i went to the opposite experience actually myself into a restaurant uh we often go with the family and there was like plastic screens everywhere it was so it was so weird that we, we quickly ate our meal and left again <laughs> and thinking we don't need to go there before we had hit some kind of new normal because that was just too much. There was too much plastic. The, uh, there was masks everywhere. And they need the mask and I understand that. But it was just like, it was like almost going into, you say, a hospital looking environment. And it was this, you know. That's not hospitality. That's healthcare. <laughs> exactly 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 so it's very interesting uh well, well you and also one of the things that i think that i think that's been very interesting when you're talking about this innovation as well is that the the speed it's been done in compared to normal times and if we can keep some of that speed and within teams and flexibility there is big hope for the industry going forward even though there's casualties as we we look uh, short term so i'm I'm quite optimistic when you can see this level of innovation within some organizations. Uh, likewise, likewise. And, you know, if you have a look at the interesting brands that are out there at the moment, you'll see that many of them were born out of the last crisis, you know, 2008 and 2009. These sorts of shocks, they they often act as a catalyst for innovation and a catalyst for entrepreneurship. And so I don't doubt for a second that there are people out there, entrepreneurs, looking at what's going on, thinking there's a better way of doing things or I've got a format that's perfect for the next chapter. And I think you will see a, a wave of innovation and entrepreneurship uh, and new entrants into the market over the, over the coming years. So you mentioned one challenge is to keep it normal, keep it like a normal hospitality experience. Is there other challenges you you would think that's relevant to to uh, to be aware of there out there as an operator? God, God there are many. 
it's a long, long list. Your 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 top your top top two. You already <laughs> had one, so you can't have three. Uh, <laughs> um, I think the uncertainty. The, the the biggest challenge right now is the uncertainty around customer behavior, and not knowing or not being able to predict what their purchasing patterns are going to be over the next twelve months. So, so the operators at the moment are facing three customer headwinds uh, when it comes to customer behavior. Don't worry, this is this still falls within the the limit of two. I think um, <laughs> the, the 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 three customer headwinds are fear of the virus, and as a result, stopping guests from going out. Then two, it's behavioral change that has taken place as a result of the the length of the lockdown. So working from home, eating out less, eating in more. And then the one that I fear the most actually is the impact on discretionary spend due to recession and and unemployment. Yeah, I think unemployment is going to skyrocket over over the coming months and there will clearly be a knock-on effect. Each of these headwinds on its own is bad enough, but to have all three kicking in at the same time is, is I think, what makes this particular period challenging. Uh, so that's one, customer behavior. And then two, the real estate element of the equation still needs to play out. It's still up in the air and, you know, the September quarter is is looming. The, the lease forfeiture moratorium uh, is meant to expire well then what happens then uh so i think you know that is an unknown and a, and a challenge for the industry which you know i think remains to be seen how that's going to unfold and going from challenges we also also must need to go on the the different spectrum or the other side of the spectrum the opportunities because you you already alert to there's some some great opportunities in here for the the challenger brands the progressive operators what are the opportunities you see right now in all this chaos? I think the obvious opportunity is a rebalancing and a resetting of the relationship between landlord and tenant. So for many years, we all know it's been a one-sided relationship. Uh, this is now going to change. It has to. Uh, and you know, like, like I mentioned earlier, I think you will see a you'll see more of a sharing of risk and reward between landlords and tenants uh, driven by need to begin with rather than rather than want. Landlords are going to have to do this. I'm not sure they're going to have a, a choice in the matter unless they want to be <clears throat> left with a whole bunch of empty units. Uh, and and we're already seeing it with with announcements from you know legal and general Cadogan estates moving to turnover rents for their leisure and hospitality tenants. So, you know, I think I think there is uh, uh, an increasing acceptance that this is likely to be a feature going forward. Then there's the other opportunity, which is, you know, to use use the current backdrop to restructure. So, you know, there's a saying, I can't remember who, who said it, but, you know, never, never miss an opportunity to capitalize on a crisis. Well, a big chunk of the industry is going to have to go through some form of restructuring over the course of the next 
12, 18 months. That restructuring is either going to be consensual and negotiated uh, between all of the various stakeholders, or it will end up being forced through via some form of insolvency. And in the absence of a consensual restructuring, that's when you're going to see the CVAs and the prepacks kick in, and we're already beginning to see a, a wave of that build in, in the sector. But I think what's different this time around is because so many businesses in the industry are going to have to explore this as an option, and so many businesses in the industry are going to have to go down this route, the stigma that was historically attached to these sorts of processes, that stigma is won't be there anymore. Um, and, and I was speaking to a, a, a private equity owner that's got a number of hospitality businesses in their portfolio. And you know, historically, PE, you know, the private equity world would be wouldn't dream of considering these sorts of processes. But you know, they were arguing that they would be negligent not to consider them. Because you know, for many businesses, it might be the only the only solution. So, hopefully, there's a resetting of the cost base to come, uh, a rebalancing of the relationship between landlord and tenant. You know, hopefully, coming out the other side, the sector will be in a better place. It's perfectly to what I was thinking. The next part of our conversation be is about again because when you grab these opportunities, there will be winners and there will be losers. In, in in this chaos, but what kind of uh, future landscape can we see for food and drink businesses? Um, what type of brands, operators, what do they look like compared to today? So I think the, the, the future, the, the short-term future, I think is going to be tough and challenging and we're going to see some failures and, and it's going to, you know, it's going to be a brutal case of natural selection. I think coming out of the other side, though, there is a compelling argument to make that actually this may be the perfect time for those innovative, challenger, standout brands to to scale up because you're going to have less supply in the market. Landlords are going to be more cooperative. There's going to be more availability of, of sites. There'll be It'll be easier to to get hold of talent. And so, you know, there is an argument. You can construct a compelling argument as to why this is a perfect time to be scaling up and, and growing uh, growing your business. Um, but it needs to be it needs to be mindful of the fact that, you know, the world may well be operating quite differently as you know in terms of the next chapter, whether we like it or not, working from home, more flexible work-life patterns will become more prevalent. Even if COVID is gone, I think the working from home uh, feature is, uh, and flexible working generally is here to stay. And I think this is going to drive increased activity in the more neighborhood and suburban leisure formats. Uh, and so those that are more reliant on city center footfall, you know, need to be mindful of this and need to consider how to address this challenge going forward. But look, in the, in the meantime, we're going to go through a, a shakedown. And that shakedown is is going to be is going to be unpleasant and it's going to be a sad time for for many. But I think you know, 
there will be brands, there will be operators that will that will survive, that will thrive, that will that will flourish. And you know, there I think they're likely to be those that are experience led, multi channel in nature. Um, and I think you know, given given what's going on, there there is going to be an increasing interest in health and wellness, and therefore a shift towards healthier options. Uh, you know, maybe maybe with uh, with some government support, you know, with their drive drive on tackling obesity. Um, so I think you know that may well feature as part of of the next chapter. But the the thing that I have absolute conviction is that the hospitality sector, the eating out, drinking out sector, uh, is here to stay. It's just going to go through an evolution uh, and another cycle um, and you know there will be winners and losers in that innovation and in that cycle uh, as as there always is uh, and what we're going through now is just another cycle uh, we went through you know we it might be a bit more severe and it might, might be more compressed but uh, once we're through it and we're out the other side and things start to normalize, which they will, we will look back on these days in the same way we look back on the recession of 2008. It will be history. And there will clearly have been learnings. Uh, and next time round, God forbid, there's another one of these on its way. We'll know what's coming. We'll be better prepared. You know, things will be different. I'm bullish and optimistic and excited about the future i just think the immediate future is going to be it's going to be challenging and, and painful and sad to watch actually yeah and i guess the the survival of this and you you already touched a bit on earlier but also when you talk about being more aware about regional opportunities is again the ones that's the ticks in with where the consumer is moving in the way they live their life in both, you know, at work, but also at home and what they want to achieve in their life and what kind of value they're looking for. I guess, I guess that's also one of the things that you really have to, as a savvy operator, you need to understand the new, I also call them savvy consumers because they ask different questions than they did before. I mean, those operators that really genuinely understand their consumers Uh, their guests, what their wants are, you know, that is half the battle. Because if you can get in the head headspace of your customer, you can then provide them with, you know, you can feed those needs, literally. Um, the, the, the problem at the moment is that I'm not sure the consumers themselves know what they want. And I think they've been uh, as much shell-shocked by all of this as as you know uh, operators and suppliers to the sector have been it's just going to take a while for it to play out and for things to settle down and for the purchasing patterns to become more regular and more defined yeah i think i think you're spot on also because we we have a situation where as you mentioned before there will be people losing their jobs over the coming months as uh, furlough starts to to be turned off slowly and that will make companies do redundancy i think there has been quite a lot in the press already in this short week we had 
a lot of announcements, especially from the, the retail sector around jobs and uh, being cut. Uh, so yeah, so I think you're absolutely right. You haven't seen the end of what the future consumer behavior is. But I, th- I think what, what may happen on the result uh, uh, as a sort of byproduct of that is, uh, yes, um, the recession and unemployment is likely to change customer behavior or change discretionary spend patterns. I think what it might lead to is if people are going to go out less frequently or spend money less frequently, I think what they will end up doing is that they will seek quality when they do go out and accept that they have to pay a bit more for that quality. Uh, But on the other side of the coin, you know, they'll increasingly look to value for the the sort of the day-to-day, the more regular purchases. Uh, so I think that, you know, you may see a polarization take place in, in the industry uh, between, you know, those offering the, the best experience, the best formats. Yes, there might be a premium price attached to it. And those that are offering a sort of more value-based uh, product or, or, or solution. And taking you know all this into account, in the end of the um, the interview, we always try to come up, come with some clear, practical advice to do out there. Because as you said, there is some really dire challenges ahead, and especially right now. And there is also great opportunity for the opportunistics and uh, the survivors and the people as resilience and come true on the other side. But what would be your like, you know, your, your top three advice on where we are right now to, to lead us out there in the in the industry that's trying to find their ways back into a new paradigm, creating a new paradigm for their businesses and teams? Um, so I would uh, encourage operators to to take a good hard look at their format and and see whether and to what extent it can be adapted to build resilience into it. So whether that's on the multi-channel side, the, the experience side, or, or whether it's with the use of technology that can help improve efficiencies and margins. So, you know, things to do with food wastage, you know, labor scheduling. So I think have a good hard look at format and ops uh, to build resilience. The The other area that needs attention is you know the sector is is going to have a debt burden that that debt burden is going to be at an all-time high whether it's been triggered because of sea bills or build-up of liabilities from hmrc or landlords you know that debt burden now is high and so managing cash flow day by day and week by week is going to be absolutely critical and having enough liquidity in the business to, God forbid, handle a, a localized lockdown or, you know, or just making sure that you're not surprised. You know, there are no surprises coming out of your numbers. So staying on top of your numbers, uh, making sure that you've got good reporting and invested in a good finance function or a good FD, I think is key whilst we go through this difficult period. And then continue talking to people in the sector and out of the sector, share experiences, the the good and the bad. And one of the one of the things that you know we've seen in spades during the last few months is 
uh, collaboration and the cooperation that has been taking place in the sector and the sharing of ideas and, and best practice. Uh, and I think that is one of the things that is going to get us through this mess. You know, there's a collective sense that we're in it together and that operators want to see other operators do well. I've got one more. There is obviously difficulties out there and it would be wrong to ignore the difficulties and it would be wrong to ignore the challenges. But we all need to also stay optimistic uh, and leaders, uh, owner managers, founders in their respective businesses uh, need to stay optimistic, not just for their own sanity, but for the benefit of their teams who'll need to who'll need to come on this journey with them. So, optim herd optimism. That's my final piece of advice. Yeah, and I think that's uh, very relevant because uh, with, uh, when there's more bad news than there's good, it's sometimes difficult. But you have to have faith in the journey sometimes, and. Uh, uh, I think that that's a, a very key thing. And I think the other ones are, are very good practical advice. I would agree with all of them as well. Um, especially the cash is king at the moment. <laughs> Understand where, where you're, you're pending. You should always do that. But you, you, if you think you have a good system, really scrutinize and make sure it picks up all the pennies in all the corners um i mean there's there's a cheesy saying but it's you know it's very apt uh, and it and, and it goes revenue is vanity profit is sanity but cash is king and you know whilst it's super cheesy it you know it's it's on the money yeah and and and, and, and that's what takes you and your team and your your mission and your bigger vision about what you want to do with your organization through any kind of storm. It's, uh, it's the energy that, that drives the engine, I often say as well. So, But Ali, that was absolutely fascinating. First of all, your own personal journey, the overview you gave around the, the whole sector and, and your views on things, because you, you look at the industry different than uh, we sometimes do as operators and experts uh, in the engine room. We get consumed about putting out the fire, so that I think that's been extreme. Will be extremely helpful for people out there. So, thank you so much, Ali, spending your precious time on giving your view and uh, an insights. And I, I'm sending you all the the power and energy to your team as well, uh, coming through this. And uh, I'm sure you will uh, you will do some some great things on on the in the new paradigm. Thank you so much, Ali, for this amazing overview of the industry from an investment point of view. Really find the idea that landlords will potentially become involved with investment in brands super interesting and very likely. If investment and progressive brands is something that you would like to explore further, please check out episode 46, The Importance of Net Profit with sector investor Charlie McVeigh. Episode 44, Setting a New Standard for Hospitality Experiences, Matt Gregg-Smith, one of the co-founders of Swingers. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please give us a like, share, rate, or subscribe to one of our channels. Tune in next time for another interview. And in the meantime, find out more about us and subscribe to our newsletter at hospitalitymavericks.com. Thanks for listening and be maverick.